I'm reading from two of the Bible's most beloved scriptures. Uh, some of you may have already memorized these, and so I do beg your pardon. <clears throat> uh, I'm sure you've you've seen them somewhere, maybe in your home or in your refrigerator or something. Uh, Leviticus chapter 10 and Numbers chapter 6. If you've already highlighted them in your Bible, then please forgive me. It, this may be old news to you, but we'll go to Leviticus chapter 10, verse 8 and 9. That might be something you already know. Um, <laughs> Leviticus 10, chapter 10, verse 8. Then the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting or you will die. Was that, is that one of your favorite uh, verses? This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. You already knew that, right? Let's do that again. You and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent. So when you, when you get there, you cannot have any fermented drink. Go to Numbers chapter 6. Maybe this is more familiar. Numbers 6 and 2. Numbers chapter 6 and 2. These are all in the same regions. So there you go. Good. Numbers chapter 6 and verse 2. Speak unto the children of Israel, say unto them. Now this is concerning a Nazarite vow. Which is not gender based. It wasn't just for men. When either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite to separate themselves unto the Lord, he, or you could say she, he or she, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink and dr shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink. Neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes nor eat moist grapes. We're just covering the whole realm of grapes or dry grapes. Here's verse 4. All the days of his separation. Say that with me now. All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree from the kernels even to the husk. I mean, we're talking the wide span. So the Lord said to Aaron, okay, you and your sons, when you go in, don't drink anything. Don't have anything. When you go into the tent of meeting, when you get to Numbers, the Nazarite vow, you never drink anything. <laughs> Nothing that comes from the grape. Amen. I feel like there's such great revelation here that, that you are ahead of me. Um, but of course, you know, I am facetious. 
And that's the second child coming out at me. Um, I want to preach today inside out. Amen. And the Lord's going to help us. And we're going to hear from the word of the Lord. And everyone said in Jesus name. We ask the Lord to add a blessing to his already anointed word. And for all of you to receive the word of the Lord with readiness of mind and an open spirit. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. Thank you. Hidden in the prayer of Hannah was a vow that carried a very specific commitment. You may remember Hannah. She was that wife that woman who could not have children. The Bible says she prayed fervently for a son, and in the midst of her prayer came this pledge. It was nothing short of a covenant between her and God. She said, Lord, if you will answer my prayer and you will give me a son, I will raise him in a very specific fashion. I will press upon him great devotion. I will raise him in the path of a Nazarite. That's 1 Samuel chapter 1. God is going to grant Hannah's prayer and Hannah is going to keep her pledge. Samuel will carry the Nazarite vow all of his life. This was the deepest commitment that anyone could make. It was a bond That had no boundaries. It was a bond. That had no boundaries. It was not an appointment. An appointment is a wonderful thing. It was not a profession. Though that also could offer great significance. Both the appointment and the profession. Could offer great significance. But this was not either of those. The Nazarite vow was a way of life, a way of living. The older English word would be moors. The moors of his life directed his choices. The vow was his identity. It was his focus. It was how he saw the world. He or she, whoever they may be. It would make up the fiber of his being, the constitution of his makeup. He was, by definition, his vow. Or it could be said that it was not just what he did, but who he was. And when Samuel became old enough, even in his very young years, his mother gives him over to Eli, the high priest. He will live and work in the temple. Samuel will learn the ways of the priesthood. But his mother's prayerful commitment was now firmly imprinted on him. The vow was all that he would ever know, regardless of what he learned from other people. Remember that Samuel will study and learn the duties of the high priest. He is the direct servant of Eli, the high priest. He follows Eli and traces his steps. 
Samuel takes note of his instructions, all the protocols and temple procedures. In time, Samuel will learn how to make the sacrifice before the Lord, and he will learn how to wear the ephod, that outer garment. Samuel will occupy many roles as he stands unique among the Old Testament leaders and patriarchs. A tragedy, however, one day unfolds as the Ark of the Covenant is stolen and Israel loses a great battle. Many of them die. Eli's sons are killed in battle. And in that day, Eli dies and the nation is cast into chaos. Samuel will come to lead the people as both the prophet and the priest. He is the only intercessor among them. Wisdom and guidance comes from him. He serves them in all of his various duties, but nothing was greater than the Nazarite vow. He was first a Nazarite. The priesthood, at least in its original form, was a position of reverence and honor. I, I don't want you to think that the high priest was of no significance. All the priests carried the duties of serving before the Lord. All of them were commissioned to carry care for the temple and for the sacrifice. But the difference between the priest and the Nazarite was striking. The Nazarite vow meant that he or she could never drink anything that came or was associated with the fruit of the vine. Not even the dried grape, not even raisins. They were told not to cut their hair or to touch a dead body. Their clothing even fit their commitment. The priest, however, could drink from the fruit of the vine, but not before entering the sanctuary. He had to be sober when he entered. On the outside was a different story. On the inside, he had to be sober. On the outside, he could, he could do a few things. The priest had allowances when he was not in the sanctuary. Are you with me now? Are you ready? What the high priest could not do in the sanctuary, a Nazarite could not do anywhere. In other words... While the high priest treated the sanctuary as a holy place, the Nazarite treated the whole world as a holy place. Oh my. The priest put on the priestly garments, the linen, the priestly robe, the thread of golden colored rope when they entered the sanctuary of the Lord. But outside the boundaries, outside the court and the holy places, the priest was not required to appear in the same way. On the other hand, Opposite of him, the Nazarite was always a Nazarite. His or her hair was always on full display. The way he or she would approach a dead person was a clear indicator of who they were and of their vow. Numbers chapter 6 shows how they had to live. And as we read, they did not drink anything connected to grapes or the grains that might look like or appear to be alcoholic or could turn into that. The Nazarite treated the whole, their whole life as holy, not just when they went into the sanctuary. You might not even know the priest if he passed by you in a normal day. You might not know a priest if they sat down to eat and drink beside you because outside of the arena of their service, they did not carry the same distinction. That is not to say that they were to live recklessly or foolishly. 
But hand them a, a glass of grape juice or wine or a cup of, of, of raisins or something fermented or close to it and they would accept it and they could. The Nazarite, however, would never even come close. They were always on display. The Nazarite was always on guard. The world for them had no borders and no boundaries. They were who they were regardless of their location. To the Nazarite, there was never a time when he was not a Nazarite. To him or to her, the vow was a, was a thing of essence. It was the essence of their being that could not be taken off. If you could get the priest inside of the arena where he served, you would notice a sense of honor and respect. Inside of the sanctuary, even in the arena of the temple, the priest was recognized, even revered, because that is where his work took place. He was good inside. He had purpose inside. He was on a mission inside. He did not enter full of strong drink when he was engaged and assigned to do what he must be what must be done he did it within the confines of the sanctuary but outside of it he became like those who had never entered the sanctuary and while this was not the original tent of of Aaron's Levitical order the letter of the law became their line of consecration as long as they were on duty Take the priest off duty and he had a private life. He participated in the common. He was among those doing what others might do. But the Nazarite had no such compartmentalized lifestyle. Here's the word. All the days of his separation. It meant all of his days from birth to death. Because ladies and gentlemen, separation is not a place. It's a life. I do not want to be an apostolic Pentecostal in this house and someone different outside of this house. I'm not content being filled with passion and power during the course of our worship service only to be powerless when I walk out of the doors of this sanctuary. Oh yes. I'm preaching about the pursuit of a total life, a total life, completely, unequivocally sold out to the kingdom without limitations of my inside duties. I want the essence of who I am to be without a boundary or of revival or a camp meeting or a Sunday service or a convention or any other church function. The outside must be a reflection of the inside. I want to know why I grew up with people who developed and worked on what they would say during testimony church service, but never taught a Bible study in their own home. Why did they sharpen their inside testimony, but were silent on the outside? How do people cuss? And use profane language, profanity on the outside, but sound like a heavenly host on the inside. I want to know why I watched a thousand Sunday services where people would speak with boldness and prophesy and move in the spirit and dance and clap and shout. All of them are excellent. But during the week, they were afraid to speak the name of Jesus out loud, void of authority and absence of power. Why is there such power when we meet, but no such things in other locations? 
I need to know this. Jesus did not tell us that power resided in the church house alone. In fact, Jesus said that the power of the Holy Ghost would reach beyond the borders of all of our familiar locations. He said, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you will be witnesses in, unto me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. I want to know why people praise on the inside but are fearful and intimidated the moment they step on the outside. I'm preaching for the new life Holy Ghost experience to be in your office, at your work, at your factory, in your home, in your trucks, in your cars, at your schools, in your community locations. That's what I'm preaching. I'm preaching about getting what's on the inside on the outside. I'm preaching about taking, uh, being who we are here and being the same thing there. This... This issue didn't just begin in our time. Peter was full of faith as long as Jesus looked like he was in control. Peter was very bold as long as Jesus was hanging around. Peter stood up to the Pharisees and religious aristocrats all day long. He did it numbers of times. Even at that last moment, he drew his sword when he thought that they had a chance. But the moment that they bound Jesus up and imprisoned him and dragged him from courtyard to courtyard preparing his crucifixion, the moment it looked like Jesus could not save the day or would not even break free for whatever reason, Peter acted as if he had never even heard of, Je of Jesus of Nazareth. Peter went so far as to swear a solemn oath, I never knew him! Peter was bold as long as he was walking in the circumference of the miracle worker. He was not so bold when he was standing in the shadows of the accuser. On the inside, he is courageous. But on the outside, the priest looks like the person who puts on his church clothes when he's coming in. The Nazarite never takes them off. The priest looks like the person who knows how to function in the framework of a spiritual worship service. The Nazarite walks in the spirit every day. The priest is almost unidentifiable when he's not on call. The Nazarite is marked by his vow. The priesthood after the manner of Aaron was flawed because those that occupied those roles were failing to keep their lives in order. And to be clear, Jesus was the king and the high priest, but he was not after the order of Aaron. Jesus is not from the house of Aaron. That priesthood was a failed priesthood because Hebrews chapter 7 verse 11 tells us this. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? There's a problem here. The problem was that priesthood was corrupt. That priesthood had limitations. Aaron's kind of priesthood did very well as long as they were in the sanctuary. Aaron's priesthood went about their priestly duties for the most part. They acted as they should for the most part. They conducted themselves as they should for the most part as long as they were in the confines of the temple area. The problem became apparent, however, when they treated their duty as a job and not as a lifestyle. They did not grasp the thought all the days of his separation. So if you come to church and you look like you're in church when you're in church, but nobody knows who you are outside the church, there's a problem with the priesthood.
Eli's sons were priests, Hophni and Phineas, but they corrupted the priesthood because they lived like heathens outside of the sanctuary. They had immoral affairs with the women outside of the sanctuary. And eventually it followed them inside of the sanctuary, which makes me know that the sanctuary won't keep you holy. You bring in what you are. I'll tell you how a church becomes corrupt. It's when the people live corrupt on the outside and think they can live a different way on the inside. Eventually, all the junk that we're living with in out there comes in here. Yes. Yes. Aaron had two sons. Aaron, the original high priest. Their names were Nadab and Abihu. Very popular names today. Nadab and Abihu. And Nadab, here's the Bible, and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took, they took their censers and they put fire in them and put incense in them. And the Bible says he offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not to do. The next verse says that God devoured them with a fire from heaven, burned them up. Here's the ashes. He even told Aaron, don't weep over your sons. Don't even cry. Just carry them out. They did not take the fire from the altar of sacrifice as they should. They were supposed to. And I submit that they did not believe that it really mattered where the fire came from. They thought function was as good as obedience. They thought that as long as it gets the job done, who cares how it got done? Nadab and Abihu did not take their appointment as critical. And though there were at least four reasons for God's judgment, the most glaring one was that they did not adjust their lives to fit their calling. They lived without a vow and it cost them their lives. Strange fire was brought from the outside into the inside. Yes, it was fire, but not from the right source. Heat, yes. Flames, yes. But the wrong source. And God did not accept it and he will never accept it or allow it. Nadab and Abihu were subjectivist. just tell you what a subjectivist is that's a person who thinks that their opinions are greater than the word of God they'll tell you well that's not how I see it you'll tell them some scriptures or whatever and they'll say well I don't really believe that God will judge me if I live this way they're subjectivist the subjectivist implants his or her thoughts into the already established word they will declare themselves right or sufficient And then they'll validate their living by their own approval. He thinks or she thinks they are sufficiently godly. But he minimizes the Bible and he makes it relevant to his cultural preferences. Now the subjectivist is in abundance. They're everywhere. People are everywhere. He or she, they, looks at the whole, they look at the holy things of God and then they decide to replace them with what they think things are just, with things they think are just as good. To them, fire from the outside and fire from the source all serve the same purpose. They'll even say, it's all the same. All the churches are the same. All the religions are the same. All beliefs are the same. We're all going to the same place. They say this because they need a broad inclusion. The broader the inclusion... The more comfortable they live, they, they, the more comfortable they are living carnal on the outside. They need to have a broad, broad realm of salvation so they can live any way they want to. But I'm not looking for their approval. And you ought not look for their approval. 
Here's Paul's writing. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? If I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. You're not going to be able to please the world and be saved at the same time. You're not. In fact, if you're pleasing the world, you're probably not pleasing God. It's, in fact, it's highly unlikely that you can please this world, which is corrupt, and please God at the same time. This life is not a church life. Don't... Pardon me, let me just... Think Zig Ziglar. Perhaps you should consider... Never saying that you have a church life. Now the prophets, of course, they weren't so kind. But I'll just implement a little of this. Just know that when you think you can have a church life and a life outside of church, you're just playing the game. You're bringing fire from some other source. Strength from some other source. If you're getting on all kinds of websites and reading all kinds of things that strengthen you and they build you up in your own mind, but they're not biblically based, I'm going to tell you right now, that's a fire and that'll ruin you. You'll think you're somebody that you're not because someone told you that, 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 that you are. Until you find your identity in Jesus Christ and you make a vow and boundaries, you're never going to find the right kind of fire. I don't have a church life. This is my life. This is the way they called the way. It was never meant to be trapped in schedule of a weekly appointment. This was not just something we did on Sunday. That was, that was something that they made up later. But that's not the way the early church thought. Inside or outside made no difference. They were the witnesses that they, God called them to be. They did not wait to come together to experience the power of the Holy Ghost. And they did not limit their experiences to a corporate gathering. I wonder what would happen to us if, if, if what we have inside was brought to the outside. I know a lot of, because I, I was raised in the church and I visited a lot of churches and I preached in a lot of churches and I know a lot of different church folks in many different places. They decry the upcoming, uh, American holiday, Halloween. They, they, they say all kinds of things about it and, and, and about the costumes, you know. They, they rant and rave about it. But they, they do all that, but they play dress up every Sunday. Fact of the matter is they love Halloween. They act like they're spiritual on Sunday, but life, the way they live, they live like the devil on Monday. We got more people loving Halloween every Sunday, preaching against Halloween at the end of October. They've been putting on a costume every Sunday for a long, long time. They're not even the people they pretend to be. Who are you today? I'm Apostle Paul. I'm Peter. I'm dressed up as Mary. That's right. That's right. So go on, rant and rave about Halloween all you want. I, I don't like it either. That's not the point. The point is, if you're different out there than you are in here, you've just been playing dress up the whole time. You've got to live by a vow. It cannot be a boundary, boundary life. It's got to be without boundaries. Hey, hey. 
are different outside of the sanctuary than you are inside the sanctuary. If you are known here, but you are unrecognizable there, then you are probably just participating in that same American holiday. But you're doing it all year long. Our relationship with Jesus Christ was and is a holy way. It's the Holy Ghost power. It's meant to be with us every day, all of our lives. All the days of our separation. Abraham and Sarah, Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, they're entering Egypt. Oh, just pardon me. I got to clap my hands. Would you clap your hands with me one more time? I feel the Holy Ghost moving in this house. God's calling you to make a vow and a commitment that's going to last. It's going to be greater out there. If you can get the inside on the outside, it's time to get the inside on the outside. you got to move and walk in the Holy Ghost. You have power. You don't just have power when we're here. You have power when you get out there. You don't just have authority here. You have authority out there. Abraham and Sarah they're entering Egypt and Abraham he knew that Sarah was a beautiful woman I've sang it to you before when you're in love with a beautiful woman Dr. Hook I won't do it today everybody wants her (laughs) 1970 sorry about that Scotty and I won a radio marching for Sheets for Christ and I got to keep it in my room and we didn't have TV but I listened to Little River Band and a bunch of other groups so pardon me I, I got saved every Sunday he knew he was married to a beautiful woman he knew she was beautiful so he turns to her and he says in Genesis 12 think of this he said okay we're going to go to Egypt Say, I pray thee, tell him you're my sister, which is partially true. You know, of course, you know a half-truth is a full lie. He, but tell him you're my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake. This is very confusing wording. And my soul shall live because of thee. He's very clever. Say you're my sister. Here's another version. Say you're my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake. My life will be spared because of you. It's a kind of odd twist. I'll be okay for your sake. It's kind of like a sleight of hand, a little twist of the tongue. He's saying, tell them we're not married so I can live. That'll be good for you. Give me the food in the famine. I'll eat. Now you're going to starve, but that's good for you. That was a lie, of course. It was not good for her. Because if they're not married, then there would be no reason, no constraints to take her as their own. There was a reason why Abraham wanted her to pretend that they were not married. The reason was he did not want to fight for her. <laughs> Let's act like we're just family. Not husband and wife. Let's act like we're just friends. Not in a committed relationship. Because if they know that we're committed, it's going to cost me something. I can't afford that. That would be good for you. 
Sarah, I love you. I want to kiss you. I want to hug you. I want to be intimate. Let's keep that personal, however. Let's make it our inside secret. But when we're in Egypt, among the princes of Pharaoh, let's act like we're just associates. Alone? Oh, yes, we'll be married. On the inside, sure, we'll talk in hushed tones. But on the outside, don't let anybody know. And that is exactly where the church is today. We have boldness inside, but we don't even know him. We want to act like we're not married, that we're not the bride. I want to tell you right now, you are the bride of Christ. You are being prepared. I think the enemy of our soul would would prefer us to act like apostolics. As long as we do it inside of these four walls. I believe the devil, though he does not really approve, he will concede a little space and a little time once or twice a week. Just as long as we leave the groom on the inside and act like associates of the Holy Spirit on the outside. I feel compelled to preach this. We have the same authority outside as we do inside. We are not limited by location. Jesus is not the Lord of the house only while we're in the house. He's the Lord of all. He's the Lord on your Monday nights and your Thursday afternoon. He is the Lord of all. The Holy Spirit that resides in your life is not confined to the church house or some gathering. And I believe that when the outside matches the inside, something powerful is going to happen in all of our lives. The devil is trembling at the thought of the church treating the whole world as holy ground if we live holy on the outside if we live purposefully on the outside like we do on the inside we will have the confidence to perform the works of the spirit on the outside 1 John 3 2 beloved now are we the sons of God and it doth not appear what we shall be but we know that when he shall appear we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is and here it is and every man that hath this hope in him what does he do he purifies himself even as he is pure if you think the Lord's coming back and you want to see him then you got to make this a way of life this is a vow this is not a put on this is not your church life if you think you're going to see him you got to get right and you got to get holy and you got to remove the boundary and you got to say I'm always in walking in the spirit I'm always at church here's Ephesians 5 Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Just stop right there. Love your wives. Now he's going to make the analogy as the church. He's talking about the church. Verse 26, the church. He might sanctify the church, cleanse the church with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present the church, you, us, me, the church. He might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. I am what I am all day long. I'm in love with Jesus all day long. I'm a worshiper all day long. I don't just sing the songs of Zion inside this house. I sing them all day long. I'm not one person here and another person there. It's all day long. I'm marked by him. I want to show forth the praises of him. I don't want to show forth the praise of him while I'm in front of you. You already know that. But if that's the only place, if this is the only place you ever worship God, call out on Jesus. Surely, if you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you ought to be speaking in tongues when you're not in the house. 
It's okay to speak in tongues at the gas station. It's okay to talk in tongues when you're at work. They're going to talk in their tongue. You can talk in, surely you can talk in your tongue. If you got a boundary, it just means that you've compartmentalized God. If you got a boundary, I know what you're after. You're after the order of Aaron's priesthood. I'm not after that order. There's a new priesthood. His name is Jesus. There's a vow. There's a commitment all day, every day. I'm almost through, but I, I, I wanted to get to this. I just, I did, I'm not really, uh, I don't really like sports analogies, but I, I did find this and it, it echoed in my brain years ago. I was invited to, to, uh, uh preach um the wisconsin's uh ministers meeting and i did teaching and i preached there and it was in green bay right across from uh where we were doing the conference was the stadium it was bitterly cold it was it was uh in the early part of the year and that's when they like to have their conferences uh, as long as it's they don't even really judge the the de- time of the year it's just the temperature of the year they can get everyone to come if it's 15 below people show up um, and so that's what their gauge is. When is it going to be 15 below? Okay, well, I'll, we'll have a conference. Um, there are 893 college football teams in America playing, uh, and they're starting, and they're, they're playing now. Each of them are filled with young men. They all dream of playing one day for the one of only 32 professional football teams. Uh, of all those 32 professional football teams, the National Football League, all of them have individual owners or family owned. They have dual ownership. But of them, there's just one of them does not, that does not have a single owner. Because in 1923, the Green Bay Packers filed for a non-profit status with Wisconsin Secretary of State. And from that moment, the whole, the whole group, everyone owned it. The, the financial support has come from the people, the fans, who in turn bought stocks and shares. Now, today there are approximately 361,169 owners, people. They own 5,009,562 shares. They are the owners of the Green Bay Packers. And in that ownership, which is by and large the people, they come to the games. A very common statement among them is that they were they are Packers inside and outside. Uh, one of their leaders many years ago said that when they left the stadium, they were just uh, they were they were just as much in the stadium as they were outside of the stadium. They said, and I quote: "We have an investment in our team because we have bought into the operations of the team to preserve it." And due to that physical and very real financial investment with shares paid for with real money, we do not respond any different regardless of our location. Whether we are at the game or at home, we are Packers. I've seen those cheese heads. I didn't, I'm not joining them. But they do strike me as a little bit different breed. Because of all the teams, people sometimes pay to get in. They don't pay to have it. They just pay the ticket to get in. But the Packers, they got 361,000 owners. So they believe that's mine. And I am that. And I just don't go there. I am that. And that is me. Whether I'm there or I'm here, I'm always a Packer. So if by chance you think... 
that this is just something you come into, cruise. Let me just tell you, there were Christians everywhere. If they were not confined to a building, there were saints in Caesar's household. There were believers in the temple. There were Jesus followers living in Pergamos, the seat of Satan. There were apostolics among the Gentiles and the Samaritans. Acts 8, 27, a man of Ethiopia, eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasury. Philip converted the Ethiopian eunuch, the chief treasure of the Ethiopian queen, which meant that the Ethiopia was one of the first to have a Pentecostal revival and experience. They were everywhere. They went everywhere. They existed today in places you may never go. They live in regions you will never see. But they are witnesses by lifestyle all of their days. They are not just apostolic Pentecostals, Holy Ghost tongue talkers, Jesus name believers inside. They are that everywhere. They are without boundaries. It's time for an inside out experience. That is the objective. You ought to stand right now to your feet and you ought to declare yourself, I'm making a vow today that wherever I am, I will be the same. I caution myself, and this may be semantics, but I do caution myself. Because I, I, I have said it and I understand when others say it, what the intent is. But I don't, I don't want to just take what we have and bring it out. I want to be what we are. This is not a commodity. It's, it's not an item to pick up. This is a, this is a vow of living. And as the world grows very dark, has definitions of marriages and lives and gender, non-binary, no one in my grandfather's age ever even heard of such. When adultery is a regular occurrence and fornication is promoted with a series and many, many apps, one night, two night stands are common. I walked by a couple of guys standing at a hardware store this week and the guy said, yeah, I picked up a girl on Thursday but I couldn't find anyone on Friday. And they talked about the app on their phone that allows them to do... I just shook my head and I said, Jesus, what is going on? How is the world going to be saved if the church looks like, acts like, participates in what the world is doing? You're called out. You're separated. You're a child of the Most High God. Where is the refuge going to be? If the light that we have here is just some motivational thing we found on the outside and we all get together... Yeah, we got the fire, but it's the wrong source. I'm calling for you to make a commitment. I don't care what age you are. You can tell me, well, Pastor, you know, I've been in this a long time. That's good. Renew your vow today that you will be what you are there as you are here. 
I pray it right now in the name of Jesus, Lord. I pray let there be an inside-out movement taking place in this house. I pray right now that there are vows being made, vows without boundaries, vows without limitations. I pray right now in the name of Jesus. Now you ought to pray. Come on, lift up your voice right now. You ought to be praying. If you're at home, you ought to be praying the same prayer, that you will have power wherever you are, wherever you go on Monday. you got to have power of the Holy Ghost. You have to have the authority of the Holy Ghost. You ought to not wait till somebody gets to church. You should be able to lay hands on them and, and have a fervent prayer that will save the sick on Tuesday and Thursday.